We're in Hebrews, and we're going to be talking about a better rest. Now, one of the reasons this thing is going to be uh, scattered is there are lots of paradoxes. At the one point, the Bible says that we should enter into his rest, and then another point that says, make every effort to rest. That'd be like the doctor says to me, just relax. <laughs> when you hear just relax, that means it's a time of stress when you're not very relaxed, okay? We're going to read about uh, Moses again, and the audience is Hebrew believers at the time of the Bible being written. And, you know, back then when they said, put you out of the synagogue, that means you lost everything. You lost relationships, you lost, I guess, social status, you could have lost your job if you happened to work for somebody that is of the synagogue. And so these people are between a rock and a hard spot. They love Jesus, they want to live for Jesus, testify of Jesus, and yet they could lose everything. Just like in modern day, you know I'm an online missionary, and we have a list of 50 countries where if the person responding with you is from one of those 50 countries, got to be careful of what you say because they could get themselves in deep, deep doo-doo, all right? So there are paradoxes and there are lots of topics running around at the same time. We have geography, we have time, we've got outside of time, eternity, all those topics running at the same time. And I'd love to be able to just speak in parallel and cover all those things all at the same time, but my mouth and your brain aren't invented that way. And so while I'm going to try to go verse by verse, all these things will be flowing all at the same time. So here we go. There's an overview of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 4, so you see that first, uh, that first third is chapters 1 through 4, talking about Jesus is better as a person. We'll be talking a little bit later on about Jesus is better, a better ministry. He's a better high priest. But I want to draw your attention to those exhortations. And that's right where we left off last week. My next click would have been this slide, and we would have been talking about some exhortations or some warnings. Here's the first warning that we already covered. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Now, there are two people that can ignore salvation. A lost person could uh, ignore salvation, in which case... They're eternally damned. A saved person could not pay attention or ignore his salvation. And that saved person is looking forward to chastening in this life. Looking forward to a loss of rewards in the next life. If I stand here, can you guys see the screen? The floor is kind of slanted. Okay. So I'll just keep moving. That way I can block everybody. <laughs> Give you fair time. <laughs> You know, you drive around Lancaster County and you see these different Bible signs at the mailboxes and everything. There's one sign that got my attention. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, if you get caught up in backsliding, maybe not even that deep, let's just simply say a rut. Don't let the devil put in your brain a picture of an angry God. Because that just makes it harder to come forward. Just like if dad is stomping around because the child did trouble, that child's not going to fess up right away. 
we have a loving God who wants us to come. In Luke's gospel with the prodigal son, where was dad? I always think of Bonanza, the movie show Bonanza when I think of this. Dad was on the front porch looking down the lane anticipating his son coming, ready for his son. We saw this verse last week. He made known his ways to Moses, and I'm going to tweak this, this slide slightly and change ways to way. See in the, in the curtain, his way? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Moses knew the way. Moses, Moses knew Jesus. They spoke. And some of the people knew the way. And so you're going to see another paradox. And the paradox is, and we're going to read it, that God promised the people they're going to enter the promised land. But not all of them entered the promised land. All the fighting men, 20 to 60 years old, all died. Can you imagine a guy, he's celebrating his birthday, the, the 20th birthday on the day of Kabbish Barnea? Too bad for him. So I declared in my wrath, I declared in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Keep in mind what you're going to see here. I'm going to mention Paul because that's who I think wrote the thing. He's going to bounce back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says, I declared on my anger, they shall never enter my, ver my, my rest. That's verse 11. Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, turns away from the living God. I said that the, uh, the audience is Hebrew believers. Paul reinforces that by addressing them as brothers and sisters. And he says, see to it, that none of you with an unbelieving heart turns away from the living God. Now, I've said many, many times, there's an argument over hundreds of years about losing your salvation, and the grand verse for the losers is, is chapter 6. We're going to get to that. But let me show you a verse from 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, remember it's written to brothers and sisters, up above a little bit with the highlight, the highlight shifted for whatever reason, if we have a sinful, unbelieving heart, but yet a brother or a sister, he cannot deny himself. The book of Romans says nothing is able to separate from the love which is in Christ Jesus. If backsliding is okay, if you're, if you're backslidden and miserable, that's the Holy Spirit calling you. That's that chastening. That's chapter 12. We'll get there in, in a while. But if you're okay with that lifestyle, then 2 Corinthians kicks in. Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. And the argument back and forth is he's lost his salvation versus he's never had his salvation. The response to that comes out of 1 John. He, those that went out from us went out from among us because they were not of us. Because if they were of us, they would not have gone out from us. So those arguments go back and forth. I'm here for you, if you're wondering, to tell you, if you have given your heart to Jesus, he will never leave you nor forsake you. We're going to get to that verse, too. It's in this chapter. I don't know if we're going to get that far. But encourage one another daily. You know, pastors love this verse because this is on the onus of us. 
pastors have a lot of work to do. Pastors have a special anointing. But this one is talking to the congregation. Encourage one another as long as it is called today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we're supposed to be doing this stuff. Now, even though, Moses, even though Paul is talking about Moses back 1500 B.C., this is David. He's quoting from the 95th Psalm. He's saying, wow, today you want to encourage others to enter into God's rest. There are some Christians that enjoy the Christian life. And then there are other Christians that are just plain miserable. That doesn't mean they're not Christians. They're worried about their salvation. They're worried if they're, not, if they're good enough. They're worried about things. That's the thing about worry. Some people worry about things that can never happen. Some people, and some of my kids, when they would take a test, the test would be over and they'd still be worried. I said, hey, the test is over. Whatever, what will be, will be. Que sera, sera. Encourage one another that we should enjoy our Christian life, that we should enter into God's rest. And that's the question of the chapter. What is God's, dress, uh, God's rest and how do I enter into it? So we'll see. So I decided on my earth that they, will, they shall never enter my rest. Why did they, this is about the Moses again, why did they not enter into the rest? There were giants. I was reading in Deuteronomy, that's my, my systematic reading right now, and they're talking about the beds of the Amorites that they found were nine cubits long. I didn't have time because what I, what I did was I looked up uh, the bed length for NBA players. And you know, last year they played in the bubble. Well, Disney went and in one of the hotels, or in, well, however many numbers of hotels where the guys stayed, they had to get new beds. And those beds, I don't know how long your bed is, but my bed isn't that long. Nine feet was the length of the new beds. Well, Moses found beds that were nine cubits, which means 13 and a half feet. Now, let's face it, they didn't just go down to the mattress firm and buy a mattress. They had to make that bed. And so why make a bed that was overly big? It's just like if you own a, an old house, the doorways are lower and the ceilings are lower because the people were lower. If Joel Embiid is seven feet tall, and can sleep in a nine-foot bed. How big were those giants? They were big. Do a Google on Petra Jordan and then click on images and see the size of the buildings that these people had done. And compare that to colonial houses in the US that were made shorter. Was it the giants? No. Was it they had too many battles to fight? No, the first battle was an easy one. That was Jericho. Was it desire to go back to Egypt? Well, we really don't want to go over there. That wasn't it. We see that they were not able to enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. Now, keep in mind, and I mentioned this already, some old spirituals talking about crossing Jordan is uh, an analogy of entering heaven. Well, my 
notion of heaven is I don't have any battles to fight in heaven. I don't have to face any giants in heaven. It's going to be peace. So what is the rest? We'll talk about that. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. He's, that's why I highlighted the word us, because he's talking about brothers and sisters. And you're not going to fall short of your salvation. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his great mercy has he saved us. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Now, in the New Testament, Paul made the, the, new, the, new, the good news, the gospel, very clear. It was the death and the burial and the resurrection. In the Old Testament, specifically to Israel, they had all those sacrifices things. They had all this stuff that were all pointing to the Messiah. And outside of Israel, Romans 1 says that the visible things of this world testify of the invisible, that there is a God, so that man is without excuse. So we see that they were also exposed to the good news, to the gospel, not as clearly as what Paul spelled out, concealed in the old, revealed in the, in the new. But the message they heard had no value because they did not share the faith of those who did have the faith. You could sit here till you're 90 years old. If you don't have the faith, then everything that's being said is going to actually count against you. Because the more of the word you're exposed to, the more you're accountable to. Mark Twain said, it's not the things that, that I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me, it's the things that I do understand. Whether Mark Twain ever became saved, I don't know. That's a good uh, homework assignment for me. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. His works have been finished since the creation of the world. This is one of those paradoxes I was warning you about. There's Genesis 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he, did, that he had done. Why did he rest? Was he tired? The Bible says God does not weary. He rested for two reasons. One, to be an example to us. We need that day of rest. By the way, Christians are not under the law. You're not under the Sabbath day. Jesus said, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. Yet it's still good to take that break, to set back. First reason that God took rest was as an example, but the second reason was he was finished. What did he, what did he work on? Help me. If you were watching the wall, you all got a, a quick hint. What did he work on? Genesis chapter 1. He worked on creation. What did he create? Everything. Okay, so there's everything, and there's the days. I want to pause there on number two. The Bible talks about the, the head, the, and King James uses the word firmament. All right? All this water, and Jesus split the waters. 
Not like the Red Sea, that was horizontal. He split the waters vertically. There was a firmament. And that explains, if you wanted to do some science versus uh, supernatural, that explains the natural versus the supernatural, there was a bubble of water around the earth. We talk about a shrinking ozone layer. There was no ozone layer. He had the H2O all the way around. And so rain 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says the heavens opened. It wasn't just the rain like we saw yesterday. I don't know about you, but I got a terrific rainstorm. Not much water, but it short and that bubble burst and the waters came down. And that's how raining for 40 days and 40 nights. You do the math and try to figure the engineering feat to just come up with one inch of water to cover an acre. It's a huge amount of water. That all came down. So then on the sixth day, he created man. And there you see Genesis 1:31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That begs some questions. The first question it begs is, when did Lucifer become Satan? It was not before the sixth day because the Bible says, and God saw that everything was very good. Maybe Lucifer fell when he saw Adam made in the image of God. Let us make man in our own image. And Lucifer becomes jealous. And if you read Isaiah 14 and you read um, Ezekiel, and I just lost the chapter, he says, I want to be like the Most High. I want to raise up and I want to do all this stuff. And Satan fell. So that's the first question that it begs when we talk about all his work. Here's the second one. I'm going to give it to you. Can you think of other works? I'm going to give it to you. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. In the mind of God, it was already done. Keep in mind, he's out of time. Not out of time with the clock goes to zero. He's out of time, eternal. E meaning out of, eternal meaning time. He's out of time. So in the mind of God, in the I am of God, his son had already died. It is finished. Do you see that? It is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. He did not say... I am finished. Because he's still working. Where is he working? He's, that's, where, that's the location. What's he doing? He's The kid's song, he's still working. He's still working on me to make me what he wants me to be. Now here's an interesting verse. Revelation 4. The Bible talks about the 24 elders and we're going to lay down our crowns at his feet. And we're all going to say this. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created. Remember we talked about creation, all his creation. I want you to look at that phrase, they are created. What's he creating these days? Don't say new species. What's he creating these days? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Now, there are two kinds of hearts that God's working on. The first one is the heart of salvation. 
The book of Jeremiah says that he took out my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Now, I want to trust that everybody in this room is saved. If not, we need to talk. Thank you. <laughs> if not, we need to talk. But David was saved when he wrote this thing. He said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He said, restore unto me what? The, the joy of my salvation. Not restore unto me my salvation. What had David done to have him say, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation? What was he repenting of? Adultery and murder. Now let me tell you something. If a man comes up to me and says, John, I've sinned, I'm not going to say, oh, what was the sin? Because I am not a Catholic priest. I might say something, well, I sinned too. But he might decide to share what he saw, what he did. Now, if he comes out and he says, you know, I took this Uzi and went into a movie theater and I just sprayed every bullet and I don't know how many people I killed. I couldn't relate to that. On the other hand, if he says, you know, I was down in South Philly at Pat Steaks, and this guy had this cheesesteak sitting right there on the counter. Any of everybody been to Pat Steaks? Oh, you haven't lived till you've been to Pat Steaks. But anyway, the guy went back and ordered some french fries, and I saw that, that steak sandwich there with the fried onions. He said, I just went up and I took it and I ate it. I could relate to that. <laughs> I've got that kind of a problem, all right? Now, the difference between mercy and grace is this. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. So when the man comes back with his fries and I'm putting the last piece of that roll in my mouth, mercy is that I don't get what I deserve. Grace is, he says, here, take my fries too. I get what I don't deserve. Now that's a silly example. But I want to come back to that relating thing, the guy with the Uzi versus the guy with the cheesesteak. Jesus can relate to every one of our sins because he's the high priest, tempted, yet, tempted just like we are, yet without sin. He's more familiar with my sins than I am because he bore all of them. We shouldn't hesitate. We shouldn't think there's an angry God. No, he's like the father of the prodigal. He has been exposed. The Bible says there's no temptation taken you except that which is common to man. He understands. The Bible also says, but he is faithful and will with the temptation give a way to escape. Sometimes I don't take the escape. Sometimes I take the cheesecake, the cheesesteak. And the cheesecake, yeah. Maybe some people take the cake faster than the steak. God is still in the creation business, but keep in mind, he's outside of time. You and I aren't. 
And so the question becomes, what is the rest that we're being encouraged to enter into? I already have my salvation. I can't lose my salvation. We just saw that he will not deny himself. The Bible says there is no temptation taking you. I'm sorry. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm secure. Safe in the arms of Jesus. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. The way of the transgressor is hard. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I want to take the easy way out. You know, I've often said there's two ways to learn something, the easy way and the hard way. Well, I've always chosen the hard way. That's growing up. For we do not have a high priest, and I've quoted this verse already. The way of the transgressor is hard. But he's there ready, willing, and able to, to save us. He's more familiar with my sins than I am because he bore all of them. Remember when we did the introduction, we said there are three key words, the three key phrases. The first phrase was better, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than uh, the high priest, better than the sacrifice, a better covenant. And Hebrews 11 talks about faith is the better way. The second word was all. And the third phrase was once for all. He bore all my sins and yours once for all. He already paid the price. The Bible says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're not your own? You are bought with a price. There's a phrase that people use, and I can't stand it, cheap grace. I'm saved, so I'll just live for the devil. Romans 6, what shall we sin that? That grace might abound. God forbid. He's already paid the price. Do I want to accept the gift, not the gift of salvation, but the gift of forgiveness when I stumble? It's already been paid for. He's already ready. It's just like with our own kids. Somebody does something, and in my mind, I've got a forgiving spirit, but what do I have to wait for? For repentance. Godly sorrow leadeth to repentance. Just like the prodigal son. Dad didn't go over to his business associate, the pig farmer, and say, hey, I want to pick up my son and bring him home. He's had enough. Luke's gospel, the Bible says, he came to his senses. Not like a government census. He came to his senses. He came to his right mind and he thought, my, my father's servants have it better than I have. And he went, to, went back to his dad. So here comes another paradox. If anyone who, this is verse 10, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, and gives an example. That's why God rested, to be an example. You've heard this phrase before. If you like your job, you don't have to work a day in your life. That also works if you've got night shifts. Here's the paradox. Rest from your work. See, that says make every effort. What does that mean? If the clock behaves, I'll tell you today. There are different kinds of rest. Physical rest, short-term rest, you know, the rest every seventh day. 
longer-term rest. And you see those verses? Joshua, chapter 1, they're already into Jericho, but chapter 24 said they've already defeated all the, all the enemies. They didn't kill everybody, and so they had thorns in their side. But they had the real estate. Jeremiah 29 talks about the Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah says to the people, hey, build your houses, grow your crops, marry off your kids, because it's going to be 70 years. You might as well rest because you're not going home anytime soon. Then there's a spiritual rest. There's the long-term rest, but starting now. He who believes my words shall not perish, but have already passed from death unto life. Already have eternal life. And by definition, it will never end. So it's long-term, but it has an immediate beginning. And then you have the short-term. And we'll be talking about the short-term, and that's what we're talking about here. In, in the olden days, people would say, <clears throat> have you made your peace with God? Who, who's ever heard that phrase? Have you made your peace with God? I don't hear it too often anymore because we live in a post-Christian society and people might not know what that phrase means, made peace with God. That means salvation, and we're going to see that. There's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God, and that's what Philippians talks about, and we'll come back and expand on that verse shortly. We're here to talk about spiritual, soulish rest. And I don't think we're going to get as far as chapter uh, verse 12 that talks about that the, God's word is like a two-edged sword because it's, it divides soul and spirit. We'll get to those fine tunes in, in a little bit. So there's the long term, peace with God. Romans 5, there we, therefore we have access through, for the peace of God. And I've already quoted that verse today. Now we talk about the peace of God, Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but make every request and supplication be made known, no, with thanksgiving be made known to God. And the peace that passes understanding will be yours in Christ Jesus. We're here to talk about the spiritual side of that. God's rest does not depend on location. And we already saw the, the promised land. We've already had seen the seven years in Babylon. Here's another interesting one we talk about today's society. Do you know that one of the highest suicide rates in our country is Southern California? People go to California because it's sunny and they're happy and they find out it's not everything that's cracked out to be. So if they don't do themselves in, they go west some more and they end up in Hawaii. California is one of the highest suicide rates, but Hawaii is the highest suicide rate. Once you go to paradise, that's what they call Hawaii, if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to have rest. So it doesn't depend on location. It doesn't depend on vacation. Some people take a day of the week off and they're miserable. Some people don't work any of the seven days and they're miserable. And we sometimes use a phrase, you have to come home and have a vacation from the vacation. Now, I'm not against vacations. I think they're pretty cool. I one time took a two-week vacation. I always take mine by the hour. I one time took a two-week vacation, and I came back, and we are in a staff meeting, and one guy says, hey, John, how'd you like your vacation? I said, I loved it. I'm not doing that again. 
said, what do you mean? I said, I forgot the details of dates and phone numbers and price tags and all this stuff. That's what vacations are for, but I don't like the re-entry. And so that, that's just for me. Other people, they need that time off. Europeans, if you took two weeks, two, two weeks off, they'd say, well, that's like a long weekend. They do like four and six weeks at a time. We're just a totally different culture. God's rest does not depend on location or vacation. It depends on salvation. So here's a little kid on a tricycle. And some kids get pretty good on tricycles. Especially if you've got blacktop instead of gravel. But when you get a little bit older, all your friends on, are on two wheelers and you still have training wheels? Well, that, that doesn't cut it. And your friends are saying, John, you need to dump those training wheels because you could go so much faster and it's so much easier because there's no coasting with a tricycle. Your feet are constantly going, right? And here I am, a teenager. I got my helmet on and my elbows are bleeding and I can't figure it out. But once you do figure it out, you know the saying is people never forget how to ride a bicycle. Once you figure out that, that balance and that dynamics, you can rest on the bicycle. Now, I've used some crazy examples. I've talked about uh, disposing my chewing gum. You know, I don't have to think about it anymore. I take care of it the right way. I've talked about creating a habit of saying, have a blessed day. And I want you to think about that. Instead of have a great day or see you later, or try have a blessed day. And that's coming easier for me. But you know what? It works both ways. If I'm standing in line to check out and I'm thinking ahead, I'm going to say, have a blessed day. Do you think that would teach me how to behave myself in front of that clerk? I took James to Taco Bell this week. And there were six people on the clock, but only three of them were working. One stood at the cash register and didn't push any buttons because why take more orders? There were cars lined up and people in the lobby. And one stood at the window ready to give food away. There was no food to give away because they weren't working. And the third one was walking around cleaning tables that weren't even dirty. So five minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, and have a blessed day is in my brain. And I'm, you know, for me, I, I would be, I wouldn't even say, give me my money back. I would just walk out. But I've got James with me, and what is he going to do? And so I just graciously wait. I did not pace. It's like if somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's okay, but that's not what you're saying. That's not what you're thinking. That's what you're saying, okay? Or there's a big argument at home, and if there's no kids, it's husband versus wife, and sometimes the kids are out of control, and, rah, 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 and the phone rings, and you say, hi, how are you? When we meet a challenge, we have rest. I can rest with my chewing gum, knowing it's going to the proper receptacle. I can rest because I don't have to figure out how to ride a bicycle again. I can rest because I am pre-thinking about have a blessed day. Does that mean I'm done? 
the Bible says, make every effort. He's going to give me something else to work on. Thus the kid's song, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. not be carried away by all the kinds of strange teachings. Keep in mind this is being written to the Hebrew believers and he and Paul was scared to death that they were going to be drawn back into the trappings of the law, the ordinances, the diets, the whatever. And at the time this was written, they were still offering sacrifices. This was before 70 AD. You'll see the verse in a couple of weeks. He said, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Now, we all know that God answers prayers, yes, no, and wait a while. And I will tell you, Paul quit praying for his thorn in the flesh. Why? Because God told him, my strength, my grace is sufficient for you. Moses in Deuteronomy, the first couple chapters, I'm, I'm going through that in my systematic reading. Moses prayed and he said, God, just let me go over there and, and see it. I don't have to live there. I don't have to watch Jericho come down. Just let me, just let me put my foot on it. God said, don't even talk about it. So until you hear from God saying, don't be talking about this anymore. We need to stay persistent in our prayer lives. And so Paul says that our hearts ought to be strengthened by grace. You know, in the book of Philippians, <clears throat> Paul says that I may know the power of his resurrection. The more you know somebody, the more you trust that person. And yet, what had Paul already gone through by the time he wrote Philippians? He was knocked off his horse. He was taken down by a basket in Damascus. He was beaten up in Ephesus. He was stoned, my belief, to death in Lystra. He was in prison. The Bible says that he was almost torn apart by beasts. He was shipwrecked. And yet he says that I want to know Christ, that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Know his power? He was doing signs and wonders. Paul raised a man from the dead. The man fell three stories down. Paul was talking too loud. I've got a clock to cut me off. But Paul was talking too loud, and one of the guys who was sitting in the windowsill just, and died. And yet Paul says, I want to know him. We want to know him, regardless of where your benchmark is, regardless of where you are right now. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And Peter tells us, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be happy where you are. Ride that bicycle. That don't. Silly example. Move to a unicycle. I'm not doing that. But it's a silly example, okay? Rise to that next plateau, but don't be satisfied with it being just a plateau. Rise to that next mountain, and we can enter into his rest. Make every effort to enter into his rest. The next click is a new topic, and we're not going to get into that today.
It's 945. 